Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. This week, we are joined by Feelin' Film contributor and newest member of the Seattle Film Critics Society, the man himself, the talented Mr. Davis. Coles Davis, how are you, sir? Welcome back to the show. Good evening. I'm happy to be back with you guys. I miss y'all. <laughs> we miss you too, man. Congratulations on your, uh, your, I guess your recent membership entry into Woo! the society. Yay! Woo! Thank you, thank you. I mean, to be honest, I haven't like gotten off of the high from hearing that news a couple of weeks ago. I mean, for me, it was something I have been working for a year and a half now, and to be a part of a group of people that I've gotten to know during screenings and podcasts and seeing how friendly they were, I'm happy to be in the company with these people, including Aaron. So it's it's great. It's fantastic. He's happy to be in the company with them. And I guess Aaron too. <laughs> Patrick, I'm working on getting you into the SFCS. Don't, don't think that this is a dream that will die. I've been pushing these folks. I'm like, he's in Arkansas. There's nothing there. Can't we just adopt him? Yeah. I don't mind being a distant relative. I mean, Arkansas is famous for having those. So why not Seattle at this point, you know, with, with that. Well, congrats, Kales. I know that that's a long time coming. Uh, in fact, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you were already in it with the amount of work that you put in over this last year. So uh, congratulations again. And uh, looking forward to seeing what uh, what you have to bring us, what's in store. Well, this week we are finishing off our love for Matt Damon by going back to 1999, arguably the best movie year ever, to talk about the talented Mr. Ripley. But before we do that, Aaron, I believe you have some announcements for us. I do. Three, in fact. And we're going to start by letting everyone know that our donor pick for August, the movie has been chosen. We are going back and picking a classic film for this month. And the winner was Rear Window, the Hitchcock classic. So I'm actually really excited about doing this. I'm a big fan of Jimmy Stewart. And so bring it on. Patrick, have you seen Rear Window? I'm not, but I'm hoping to when we get to the donor pick. So it's not I'm bad. Work on my... <laughs> it's not bad. That's way better than the first one that you boxed well, me the... about a week ago. <laughs> it got a little. I had to work on it a little bit. It took me a little bit of time. I had to get my voice warmed up. That was just a quick box, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, and so I'm looking forward to discussing it with you as a first time watch. Great. Couple weeks from now, so that'll be coming out. Also, if you aren't in our Facebook discussion group and participating in the Substitute Summer Blockbuster Bracket that we have going on, the question is, why not? The first week of voting was this past week, and it was intense with some pretty tough matchups, and it's only going to get more painful from here. Voting happens Tuesday through Fridays, and you can join us at facebook.com slash groups slash film. Kales, I know you've had a lot of fun with these brackets so far. Tell the good people why they need to come be a part of this. I mean, who doesn't love a healthy debate about film? I mean, especially if you're a film connoisseur. I mean, we 
we're having crazy matchups, like matchups that had, that have broken my heart. I mean, speaking on the donor pick, uh, there was a matchup involving signs and rear window, and I've always had a rule: you can't beat out a great Hitchcock. You just can't. But signs, I remember having. Uh, that was a movie from my childhood. That was the movie that my mom had to turn the lights on and and all throughout the house in order to watch. So I have great memories from there. And but that's just a subset. I mean, there's. Plenty of crazy battles, a lot of trash talking, but good natured. And I mean, who doesn't enjoy a film battle? Exactly. It's been a lot of fun. And it's what's also interesting is Patrick has not been on social media for a few months now because of the pandemic. He's taken a big break, which is good. And so in order to break some ties, I will get Patrick's vote from offline, which is fun because the rest of the group doesn't know it's coming. And we've had some matchups that are literally like, 30 votes to 30 votes, and Patrick just comes in with the tiebreaker vote. Or we'll have a vote that is uh, just uh, off by one vote. Sorry, it's like so one film will be up by a vote, and Patrick will come in, and sure enough, he'll end up voting for the other one. Put those two movies into a tie, which will send us to the box office totals as a tiebreaker. It just gets nuts. It's It's been so much fun. And like I said, with the 32 films that are remaining... They're all incredible. So no matter what you're voting for at this point, you're likely voting against another movie that you love. And it's heartbreaking and super fun all at the same time. So we hope everybody will come join the Facebook group and be a good uh, participant and be a part of that. Now, real quick, I also want to tell you guys about an upcoming promotion and your chance to win a free movie. I bet your ears are perking up now. Everybody who was listening was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm just driving down the what free. Did someone say free? That's right. So inspired by Pete Davidson's own true life story, this celebrated comedy from director Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson himself uh, is the king of Staten Island. And it is coming to digital and Blu-ray and DVD available to own on August the 25th. Now, the disc version of this is going to feature over two hours of hilarious, never before seen bonus content, including alternate endings, deleted scenes and a gag reel. We have not seen this yet, but Rolling Stone calls it an emotional comic knockout about love, loss, and laughter on Staten Island. It also stars Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Vinny, Bill Burr, Belle Powley from Apple TV Plus's The Morning Show, a show that Patrick and I are big, big fans of, Maude Apatow from HBO's Euphoria and Netflix's Hollywood, and the late, not the late, that sounds like he's dead, the great Steve Buscemi from Many an amazing picture, including Con Air and Armageddon. Those are the ones I'm going to reference because those are the ones I love. But Steve Buscemi has been in so many amazing things. So I, I'm excited to see his performance in this. Anytime he shows up, it's always a positive in anything that he does. So to celebrate the King of Staten Island's release on VOD and physical copy, we have five Blu-rays to give away. Now, the way that we determined to give these away, I think, is a little bit fun. And so on the morning of Wednesday, August the 19th, we are going to post a giveaway thread in our Facebook group. It will be marked as an announcement so you can find it pretty easily. And in this thread, we are going to invite our listeners to post pictures of their movie-related or movie-inspired tattoos. Now, to give you an example, I have a tattoo on my wrist that says... Give me truth. 
and it's referencing a Henry David Thoreau quote. But the reason that this quote became important to me is because it's used in both the book and the film adaptation into the wild. And so I actually came upon it because of that movie. And so for me, it's very much a movie related tattoo. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a picture of a Tyrannosaurus Rex because you love Jurassic Park. Although if you have one of those, please, by all means, come post it. We want to see that. But yes, so any movie related or movie inspired tattoos, we're going to pick five winners from the group of people who post um, on August 22nd, and you will win a Blu-ray copy of The King of Staten Island. That's all you've got to do to come and be entered into this contest. Come post picture your tattoo in the Facebook group. And again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash feel and film. And let it be known, listeners, that even though Aaron does have a movie-related tattoo, he is not eligible for one of these copies. So just if you're confused about that, we do not uh, steal copies or, you know, win those. Out. That wasn't in my notes. You're, you're adding <laughs> things to my notes. <laughs> I do that from time to time. <laughs> I don't know why I can't win. I think I should be eligible. You're eligible, but you're just eligible to <laughs> participate, but not to win. So, okay, that's I'm fine. Saying, I'm saying it now. Five copies will be available for five of you. All right, that's fair. All right, before we get into the spoilerific part of our podcast, which we are prone to do each week, we like to start out with one word takeaways, that one word that pretty much sums up our experience of the film. Kales, why don't you start us off? The word for mine was frustration. In the town of Mr. Ripley, we follow um, a young man named Tom Ripley who is frustrated with the way his life is currently um, moving. You know, he's a piano tuner at a department. He's kind of he, he has appreciation for the finer things, for things that high class people enjoy, but he doesn't have the ability to access it. So he's stuck, you know, living in a rundown apartment um, pretty much on the outside. And then he gets a chance based on a friend giving him a jacket to help this billionaire um shipmaker get his son from Italy to come back to New York. And so he goes over to Italy, he finds that it's paradise. But yet the frustration sets in because he knows that this can't last forever. He knows that eventually he'll have to go back to New York. And he has a great time. He meets this guy named Dickie and they hit it off very well. But then again another frustration comes in is that him being a homosexual, he will he won't be able to win the affections of Dickie like he wants to, because for one, Dickie has a girlfriend. And for two, I mean he he doesn't run in the same circles as Dickie. You know, he's looking on the outside there. And that's more apparent during the second half of the film when Dickie's friend Freddie comes into the picture and pretty much exposes him for what he is. And another frustration for Dickie is that his whole life is centered around living as a fake somebody than a real nobody. He will always be inside. He always knows he will always be that guy that's stuck in the proverbial basement, the lower class, that he'll never be able to fit in amongst the high class, no matter the way he can infiltrate it like a snake and and make his stay. He will never be able to be fully what he wants to be. And the whole film for me is just about that frustration that Tom Ripley feels that he's on the outside looking in. Absolutely. How about you, Aaron? What's yours? That's great, Kales, and I think you sum it up really, really well. And for me, it's sort of tied to what you're saying. And I, I came away with the word snowball. And 
The reason is because I couldn't help but keep thinking about how this all starts with such an seemingly innocent lie. Tom is playing piano at this event. He's filling in for somebody who is hurt. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? On the surface, you think that is fine. He's making a buck, helping somebody out, and he just happened to wear this guy's Princeton jacket so that he could make sure that they didn't get all upset that he was the one playing piano for him because they wanted his services, but they wouldn't have been okay with him, like Colesse said, if they knew he was lower class. And it all starts because he's wearing this jacket from Princeton, and somebody mentions, hey, you're from Princeton, and he says, yes, because he has to lie. He has to keep up this appearance. And from there, it's just this snowball effect. It reminded me so much of the way that my parents would continually tell me, you know, like the problems that come with one little white lie. And once you start that ball rolling, you have to lie to cover up and to make sure that the lie, last lie you told is going to be not found out. And so it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens to Tom. It starts off so small and maybe innocent in some ways. I know we're going to discuss whether or not we think that's true, but ultimately each little lie gets you something that you didn't have before. And when you start experiencing that, it's like, well, I got away with that. So maybe I should lie again and do this other thing. And I think it's human nature to kind of want to up the ante a little bit. When you feel that you're getting away with something, you're like, oh, I can get away with a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And before you know it, it snowballs and Tom's little bit more turns into murders and then serial murders. <laughs> and, and it just gets completely out of control. And at that point, you get yourself into a position where you can't get out of the lies there's no way to just back out of it in a, in, in a way that's not going to completely disrupt and destroy your life and everything that you've built. So, yeah, snowball for me was the word, Patrick. Both are really good, uh, Aaron and Kales. And I think the word that I had to round that out was observant. And for me, it really boils down to how John Ripley observes the world and how he's able to do what he does throughout the film. It takes someone who reads people who looks at his surroundings, who understands the chess game of life and what he is trying to accomplish, whether that changes throughout the story, we'll get into more of that. But looking at him from the very beginning all the way through the final shot, it seems as though he is looking at people and looking at places and looking at things and how those things can contribute to the betterment of his life for a way, shape, or form that he wants to live. So being observant, being able to respond, not react to people, to respond to his surroundings, to kind of move in a pinch from one place to another, to adapt to a situation, I think is something that says a lot about him as a character. It makes him really interesting. I know that this movie was based off of a book, and it kind of makes me curious where the gaps would be filled in from the book to the movie, because it seems like there were some gaps in terms of who he was, where he came from. It got sort of filled in, but the movie as a whole really captures the sense of the way in which he lives his life has to be from a place of observation, being able to see 
what he can gain from people and the places he goes and the things that he grasps onto, how that can benefit him. Well, this is your official spoiler warning. We do go in-depth with all of our movies so that the conversation can be as fulfilling as possible. So with that, feel free to stop here or keep going if you want to be spoiled or if you've seen the movie, then continue to join us in the conversation. The one big thing that encapsulates this whole movie is this idea of class and the class system specifically. And it functions as a means of pushing the narrative along. And I wanted to start out our conversation by asking what you guys think the movie is telling us about class in general and really more specifically what its level of importance is to these central characters that we mentioned, John, Dickie, Marge, Freddie specifically. So I wanted to throw that question out and see what you guys thought. Well, what I took away from what the film said is that sometimes life life isn't fair. You know, um, Dickie Greenleaf, let's use him as a character. Um, he grows up in a family, a rich family. You know, his dad, Herbert Greenleaf, Herbert Greenleaf is a shipmaker. So his dad is sitting on millions. So he doesn't have to really worry about anything. I mean, he has access to to anything he wants fresh out of the womb. You know, um, he's able to go to the best schools. He goes to Princeton. He ends up bombing out of Princeton. So you know what happens? His dad ships him off to Italy and get and lets him use his allowance to live a high life in Italy. I mean, what other kid could have that privilege? And Tom Ripley, you know, he's a guy that aspires to have those things, but he's born into a sucky situation. We don't really get any background into his character or why he's in the situation he's in, but we just know that he's a man of lower means. He... He lives in, I guess what you can call an apartment. It's almost like one big room that's not really bigger than most houses you see. I mean, he's working as a piano tuner. He's having to, you know, keep the uh, his the high-class patrons that he wants to be a part of, he's having to keep them clean and refreshed when they come into the bathroom in order to get some tips. That's his life. So when he goes and he spends his time with Dickie Greenleaf, he sees, wow, like, this is almost like paradise. This is... This is what I've wanted. This is this is the life I've wanted to have. This is what I dreamed of. And when it comes time for him to have to go back, he he see it's almost like a ter- it's terrifying to him. It's almost like death. You know, he's been given a new life in a way. He says it later on in the film. He's been given a new life, and he doesn't want to let go of this life, even if it means um hurting um hurt, killing people or deceiving people or lying, whatever it takes. That's what that's what he does not want to lose he doesn't want to lose his life and i think that says a lot that most of the time in this country you know the people who don't have the means are looking up at the people who do have something and sometimes that look can be of jealousy it could be an admiration it could be a want but most of the time life doesn't work that way you know just because we want something doesn't mean that we exactly get it you know sometimes it takes circumstance sometimes it takes a lucky break sometimes it takes knowing some people but if you think you can get there by hard work and grit, that's not really the, the whole story. And with with this film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, it lets me know that, you know, class inequality, I mean, it's, it's been going on forever. This film was set in the 50s. It's still going on right now. And you can take a lot from this film and put it to what we're seeing with the um, the, the dividing line between the rich and the poor now. Yeah, I completely agree. It's actually interesting because... I wasn't thinking about this when I did my rewatch of The Talented Mr. Ripley, but I've spent most of today 
binging South Korean cinema, which brings into my mind Parasite and how similar the way that we see class affect the seemingly, you know, I guess I would say not necessarily innocent. I feel like both Tom and the families and parasites are sort of coming from a place of not necessarily totally humble, but they are easily influenced to the point where they get a taste of this rich world and they want to be a part of it. And they sort of try to weasel their way in to get close to it. And then just like you said, Coles, when it becomes a threat that they're going to lose that, they respond with force and violence in order to keep what they've attained. I think this is a really interesting film because we get to see various levels of high class. We see Dicky, who is that kid who you said is out there playing with daddy's money with no care in the world really at all. He just spins it and he's the utter playboy and is very blind to what Tom is doing. He is so caught up in his own little world that he's able to be deceived, right? Then you have someone like Marge who, while she's also easily deceived, she is more gentle and, and she's rich. She's part of this world, but she has a lot more empathy and caring for people around her. She's not as standoffish as Dickie. She doesn't believe that everybody is beneath her in the same way that Dickie does. But then we have Freddie, who is also different in that he's much more like Dickie in that world that he lives in and, and relishes the high class and the money. But Freddie is not just completely blinded by what's going on around him. Freddie is, like Patrick, you said, he is observant. He is watchful. He understands the deception that is happening and taking place. And so we see how Tom kind of gets caught up in believing that all rich people are the same because the Greenleafs being, you know, is it Herbert? I don't remember his name, but that Mr. Greenleaf and then also Dickie are so easy to fall under this spell, this way that he kind of weaves a lie to them. He assumes that all these rich people are going to fall for it. Meredith falls for it. They're all falling for it. And so a big part of his ultimate, you know, almost downfall, I guess I would say, what really starts to trigger that being Freddie knowing what's going on is because he's unable to schmooze Freddie and, and pull one over on him in the same way because he is assuming that everyone is going to be this same level of able to be, you know, wowed. I think it's really interesting because it says a lot about how when you have money and status, you don't believe that you're touchable. Specifically, one of the, my favorite things about this movie is early on when Tom is meeting Dickie and he's met him at the beach and lied to him about who he is. And I think it's up in there. They're hanging out in like the courtyard or whatever. And Dickie asks him about what his talents are. And he says, forging signatures, telling lies, and impersonating practically anybody. He literally tells him exactly what he's doing and what he is going to do. Right there in that moment, point blank, says, these are the things I'm great at. I'm great at lying, pretending to be someone I'm not, and forging signatures. And yet, this guy is so blinded by 
what he has achieved and, or what he hasn't achieved anything, but he's blinded by this place that he has for himself way up high above Tom that he couldn't fathom. And it's the same thing as Parasite, right? It's like this family can't imagine that these servants could have any sort of smarts. Like, what, how could they possibly be intelligent? They clean for me, right? They're just here to, to ride on my coattails. And so I think that says a lot about how we view class as assuming that about people with status and money. And I don't know that it's necessarily true. I think it is an assumption. I think it's the way that we want to believe high class is in a way, in part, because us who middle class or low class who don't have as much don't want to believe we want to have this thought that those the other that they can't possibly be smart enough to to have earned that. Right. It must be because of some means that is unfair or unrealistic. Um, and so I think that plays into it as well, because you, you seriously, you always see this same trope when we talk about class. The high class is never smart <laughs> and on to what's going on around them because they're blinded by money. And that's not the case in every you know wealthy person that we've ever known. But that's the ones that we want to focus on, because that's typically the kind of person who is going to ignore the Tom Ripley's of the world, thus creating this cycle of feeling of lack of worth that, it, you know, who knows what kind of reaction that's going to trigger in someone. Absolutely. When you look at a movie like this, there's a reason why it's a trope. It's because there's an element of truth to it. I got to thinking a lot about the levels of culture, levels of society, whatever you want to call it, you can call it class. But when I was doing a lot of uh, prison ministry several years ago, one of the things I observed is that some of the smartest people that live in our world are those that are incarcerated. Why? Because they have to be creative in order to survive. When you have people that are in a cylinder, not cylinder, what is the, a, <laughs> sorry. Bubble? What's that? A bubble? A bubble, yeah. I was a cemented, you know, a four walled cell, whatever. A square. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't, there's a phrase there. I can't think of it, but whatever. But when you have people that are that are stuck in this environment for so long, they have to do things that get them creative, that they are creatively trying to either find a way out if they're trying to escape or just find a way to live. And so they're doing things in order to survive. They're utilizing the resources that they have, which are very few. I mean, we have technology at our fingertips. And oftentimes in the creative world, sometimes you have to limit your resources in order to maximize your creativity. And I think when it comes to the class system and what the talented Mr. Ripley is doing so effectively is it's elevating the fact that for those that have everything, we tend to look at those who don't have anything as being dumb when the polar opposite is true. Those that don't have much have to make use of what they have and do it in a creative way. I mean, Ripley can be looked at as being someone who doesn't have much, who lives in a crappy apartment, has to borrow a jacket to play the piano. I mean, already the movie at the very beginning is kind of putting us in this place of saying, where where are you in the class system? Do you look down on this guy or do you relate to him? Do you see him as an equal or as an unequal? Where does that put you? And so for an audience member, I'm kind of looking at him going, 
man, is he beneath me? There's a small part of me that kind of explores that. I'm like, oh. And then the movie just kind of opens it up and says, you know what? He's not as dumb as we think he is. He's not as unintelligent when it comes to the things that he's doing. And it's interesting to see how when you look at Dickie, that first encounter says so much at the beach. He looks at Ripley and Ripley says, yeah, I knew you at Princeton. You must have known me. And he just kind of gives him this look. But then he starts making fun of the fact that he is completely pasty white, like he is not tan at all. And he even compares him to Marge. He says, Marge, he looks like you, essentially. These different things are showing us that Dickie is completely oblivious to what's going on. And that kind of plays into the whole clothing type thing and how clothes are used in a phenomenal way throughout the course of this film to kind of separate these two people, Dickie and Ripley, when they become eventually one person. And so I think what the film does really well is it challenges us to see beyond the things that we would may we may or may not in our own lives kind of put people in boxes. Ripley looks like this, he acts like this, he talks like this, therefore he must be this. That's not the case. And in the world that we're living in right now, I've become challenged in a really healthy way to look at the world around me, to look at the people I interact with and not by default put them in a class bubble or put them in a race bubble or put them in a cultural bubble of some kind because it's one, it's stupid. They're not the end of a sentence that goes through my head, first of all. And two, people are so much more complex than we make them out to be. We tend to oversimplify a lot of things in order to make it make sense in our heads. And what happens is we typically miss the mark by a whole bunch. So I could look at Coles with his amazingly blonde hair and I could make an observation and put a sentence in my head of Coles is this, but that's unfair because one, I know a lot more about Coles, even in this conversation about him being a part of the Seattle film critic society, I can continue to make, observations in my head and make statements about him but it still doesn't make the complete picture because one i haven't spent time with him beyond just this podcast so it's not fair for me to say you're this and i'm that or you live in seattle and i live in arkansas therefore we're different because of these things that may be true but that's not what defines us and ripley as a as a movie through the characters through john through dicky through marge and through freddie kind of give us an outlet to be able to say, oh yeah, I'm like Freddie in this regard, or I'm like Marge. Both Freddie and Marge are really interesting because they both discover Ripley and his facade, but to their detriment. Obviously, <laughs> Freddie to his physical demise, but Marge in that she ultimately knows and can't prove that he killed Dickie. So even the truth for them leaves them with some kind of negative impact, whether it's the loss of life or the loss of your your love and no justice to be able to get him back. So it's using class as a means to wrap your heads around that and to kind of wrestle with the fact that class might define, but it shouldn't. And that this movie helps kind of unpack that and saying we can get beyond that. One of the other things that 
I really liked about this is something that Aaron, you and I talk about, we kind of relate to in a, in a lot of our podcasts when we can is the importance of names. It's a recurring love that we talk about on the show and names in and of themselves have this power in this movie. They're connected to class for sure. But I wanted to ask you guys, what power did you see that the names in this film have when it comes to the relationships, when it comes to status and the overall story? The powers are immense. Um, if you have a name that carries a strong and heavy connotation to something, you know, whether you're a financial success or whether you have a talent or whether you have a skill or whether you even done something infamous, it, if you're, if, if a name is attached to that, that name gets reverberated. Like, from so many corners, from even it can live on for many years. Um, we see it in America. There's the Vanderbilts. There's the Carnegies. There's the Rockefellers. I mean, these families who have had this fortune for a long, long time that all you have to do is say their last name and you know exactly who they are. And these people who have the last name, they can, they have the power of going anywhere and knowing that the attention is going to be on them for one. And two, they can have access to anything based on their name. Their name has may carry goodwill that name may carry value that name that name may carry for some people oh if i have this person in my store then i can make a lot more money than if they didn't come or it could have the um it can send information to people like oh well you don't want to mess with that person i mean i mean they're related to this and this you know and they they run hard so names play a big part in this film for one the greenleaf name i mean we see it when tom is first leaving new york he gets in. He gets in with um, Mr. Greenleaf's limo driver. He tells him, "Hey, the the Greenleaf name opens a lot of doors." And off off the bat, Ripley learns like, "Hey, with this name, as long as you have this name, you can have you can have anything you want." I mean, it, it, the the treasure is right there for you. I mean, when Mer when Marge with Marge, well, she doesn't really have a name, but Meredith. Meredith has a name. She's a part of the textile logs. She says, like, yes, we're we're known everywhere. And but later on in the film, she talks about how having all this money and having this prestige, I mean, it's not really all happy, all that's meant to be. She tells Tom that she feels more comfortable being around people who have money but who hate it. You know, she doesn't feel she kind of initiates herself away from the people who have money and enjoy it. You know, they, who knows if, if she's characterizing them as being greedy or is that they're being uncaring or if they're like you both said, if they're looking down on people, she just wants to she wants to keep herself with people who understand that they have this privilege. But also, they don't really typically enjoy it. I mean, yes, the money. Yes, that's that's a good thing. But the, but the fame and the attention, they may not be such a good thing. Um, We see with Tom that, you know, he's so embarrassed by his. You know, he ha he has low self-esteem. He's so embarrassed by his life that he doesn't even introduce himself to Meredith in the beginning as his name. He says, I'm Dickie Greenleaf. He already starts the pendulum of, I'm going to take this name because this name has prestige. This name means that I'm somebody. This name means that, hey, you know, no one look down on me. They're going to see that I'm the man, that I'm the guy in the room, and that, hey, I'm not just a piano tuner. Um Jakey Greenleaf understands what his name carries. I mean, we see it from, you know, him just going down to San Pedro and just getting a house just because because he has the, the resources, the connections and the name to back him up outside of like just the the thing about names being important. We also understand that sometimes your name doesn't really mean that you are this person who has to be respected. 
You know, a name may say one thing, but the person carrying that name may be a different person. So while the Greenleaf name is associated with the prestige, can we really say that Dickie Greenleaf is really a good guy? Um, uh, is he really someone that we would, like, trust to hold our secrets? Like a guy that would, like, he'll show his attention one minute, but then when he sees something better, he'll go to that thing and he'll ignore us? Is that really a guy we we want to assume has this high prestige and that he's this really, really got this really thoughtful, smart guy that earned everything he has. And then we also look at Tom Ripley. Um, You know, his name may not mean much, but he does have, he is a cunning guy. And that means something, even if he uses it for ills and, and bad intentions, he's a smart and cunning guy. He knows his stuff. He may not know a lot about jazz, but he's growing to learn about it because he thinks that that's what me, that makes him have that cultural capital. Um, he loves the opera. Um, he loves the fancy clothes, you know, um, the nice house, even though he's not really good with um, house decor. Um, he had a like an ugly um, green wall spread when he transformed into Dickie, so that wasn't a good look. But he, he loves the tailored suits, you know. He loves the attention. He loves that he could be able to be a, um, a gay man, but he could still be able to woo a woman. And I think there's an internal struggle with him because I think that he is – Inside, he he is um, homosexual, but he may he may be embarrassed by that. You know, it's the 1950s, so you know during that time the LGBTQNA community still had a lot to fight for. So he may just want, he may just think that being with a woman like Meredith, having this name as Dickie Greenleaf, you're expected to be with like um, someone like Meredith, someone who comes from means as yourself. So the power of each name in this movie and we don't even hear about freddie really speak about his name but he's known everywhere i mean meredith's parents speak of the opera like freddie oh we know about him like we could wild horses could drag him to an opera so your name is your name you know and if your name carries some importance then things in the world get a lot easier and they can get a lot of cumbersome because you have a lot of attention focused on you yeah i think that's the key right there is that it is both it with the name comes both privilege and also responsibilities and that what people who are on the outside of that name usually see people who want to have a name i.e a tom ripley who says i want this status i want this privilege you never think about the responsibility that comes with the name you never think about this incredible social circle of people that know you because of your name, that you're going to have to totally fake out in addition to those that are just right before your eyes. You just don't think about all of the extra responsibilities that come with that. And so it can be a hindrance. It's it's like wanting something. You just want the best parts of something without necessarily knowing all of the pros and cons, right? You write down a list and you see, oh, here's the pro, pro, pro of this thing, and in this case, it's the Greenleaf name. Well, I want that. But you didn't take the time to figure out what the cons of that might be and whether or not they might offset some of those pros. And that's almost always going to be an issue. It's going to come up when you do that. And I think that the lack of being able to be comfortable in your own skin is just – it's a very human thing for us to struggle with that. But – a very important thing that most people are usually able to overcome and get used to and just accept their life 
for what it is and find value in their faith and who they are or whatever else th they may decide that is going to keep them going. That means I don't need to be someone else. I, my name is enough. My name is important and it means enough to me and that that's all that matters. I don't have to have a name that means something to the rest of the world. And it's almost like a, a look at celebrity here. You know, like you, you can see Dickie and some of these folks as almost like the way that we worship celebrities at times, the way that Tom looks at them and just thinks that they have it all. This guy's in Princeton, people. He's in freaking Princeton. I mean, I just, I freaking, I'm freaking out. Like he's a brilliant dude with an incredible education who also is an amazing piano player and super talented in all of these different things. Like this guy didn't need this name to make a name for himself. That is one of the things that I feel people are in such a rush to get to this point, this level that there's no patience. And I believe that the character that we see created in this film, Tom Ripley, I see no reason why 10 years from now, Tom Ripley isn't a name. He's not someone that has a name that has value in the world for whatever he chooses to do because he is that talented of a person. He is that smart of a person. He can be successful. It's just not quick, and it's not the level that he wishes that he could be. And so, you know, here we are, and he, he gets into this issue where he's trying to steal somebody else's name instead. I've been reading a book, uh, actually just started tonight called Irresistible, and it talks about the, the power of addiction in a digital age. And it's been really a, an eye-opening experience so far. But one of the things that is talked about early on is that quick fix, that ability to get that hook, that high, that immediate transaction of endorphins or whatever it is when you hit a certain level or when you get a like on your Instagram feed, those things that really start to elevate you. And then those likes start to elevate themselves. Hey, I need a thousand or I need to get to 10,000. I need to get this many followers by this date. Aaron, you and I talked about this, that when we first started the podcast, one of the motivations, not the motivation for the podcast, but one of the byproducts is we have to become legitimate. So we need to get a lot of followers on Twitter, which may be true, but we knew that we couldn't manufacture those by just having people retweet stuff. I mean, it's been honestly an organic growth and maybe half those accounts are bots. Who cares? But the fact is our show is four years old and I think that we've accomplished a lot, but we've accepted the fact that unless something crazy happens, the show is going to be just what it's been for the last three or four years, a show that revolves around two guys talking about movies and how they make us feel. But at the same time, there's a small part of this that says we want to be different. In a podcasting community that is saturated with movie review content, we are another fish in that sea. So how do we make ourselves different? And when you look at the names in the world that we live in, in terms of like how people are referred to, we talked about celebrities. We don't talk about Tom. We talk about Tom Hanks. We talk about Leonardo DiCaprio or Matt Damon. And it's not just because we're making a differentiation because there's a lot of Matt's out there. There's a lot of Tom's out there, but we don't refer to these guys by their first names. For instance, when we refer to them, we refer to them as full names. And 
in the movie, I think it's really interesting that you look at these characters, even how we're referring to them, Tom or John, Dickie, Marge, Freddie, we're referring to them by their first names. And in some way, I think the movie is trying to show us that, particularly with Dickie and Marge, they are trying to disassociate themselves with the name that comes with them, but not necessarily disassociate themselves from the privilege or the benefit of being attached to that name. And that's a little bit ironic, stupid, whatever the word is I'm trying to think of, that you have these guys that are basically taking the benefit of the name without necessarily embracing the responsibility that comes with that name. Dickie is still a Greenleaf, but he won't say that he's a Greenleaf. He'll just live the life that the Greenleaf name gives him until he can't. Marge, I think, in some way is similar, although hers is more the fact that she wants to separate herself and be her own person. She doesn't want to be known as the daughter of a family that has a huge textile footprint and or, or whatever it was that, that she was doing. And then you have Freddie, who I think when we talked about it earlier, that he's the one that kind of sees through John's facade. He's probably the one that is completely fine being a person that comes from money. And he is okay having a last name attached to himself. But I think the movie also does something interesting in terms of using names. And one particular instance stands out to me, and that's when the four of them are on the boat and Vicky and Marge go underneath to have sex and John's kind of peeping or Tom's kind of peeping and Freddie starts calling him peeping Tom. And I got to believe in that moment that Tom Ripley is basically trying to, if he didn't have a motivation to lose his name at this point, that was probably the clincher. And so when we look at the names and how they're used, there's definitely a separation from wanting to be connected, you know, not wanting to be connected to the last name that you're connected to, but also to find your identity in someone else. And I think that for Tom, he wanted to be Dickie, but not Dickie Greenleaf. I think he wanted the same things that Dickie did, only he felt like maybe he could do it better because he saw Dickie as someone who was flawed and he didn't, which kind of leads into my next question and this is something that really surprised me as a first time watch that's my confession right now this is the first time i actually saw this so it was a a wow moment for me seeing this but i thought the movie had such a bizarre irrational tone in terms of this violent behavior that was depicted specifically from ripley himself when i watched this I didn't expect that, honestly. And maybe it was because we're coming off of other Matt Damon roles, not that he's not violent in other things, but I think that watching Tom from the beginning and how he sort of loses it occasionally to the point of killing two people, it really surprised me. And I I wondered, where do you guys think that comes from for him? And do you think he sees that in himself? And, And how does he justify it? It comes from a deep depth, a deep desperation to not go back to his old his old life at this point. When you get a taste of something that changes your life, it makes you even 
not even want to think about going back to what you came from. I mean, we we hear it when people talk about how these people grew up that they were living in the projects and that they made this vow that they were going to get out and they were never going to come back. And, when, and once they make it out of like an area that may have been destituted by violence or drugs or just mayhem and chaos, when they get out of there, they are willing to do whatever it, it can be done to not go back. Because once you go back, that's considered like a failure. And it's, it's back to feeling like not just that sting of, you know, losing something, but you're also going back to those bad memories you had, those traumatic times, you know, the times where, you know, you cry your sleep to, cry yourself to sleep at night because everything is hopeless. And I think that's what's going through Tom Ripley's mind when he's at the train station and he's like telling Dickie, oh, well, we can still write your father. He can still send him more money. And Dickie's like, no, um, you know, we had a good run. And Tom's like, well, what about Venice? What about Rome? And Dickie's like, I I'm sorry, Tom. You can't pay. You can't even pay your own way to go skiing. And there's like a big, there's a good, like Tom, there's a good close up of Tom when this happens. Like his mouth is kind of like, it's not really wide open, but it's a gap. It's like, it's like the fear is starting to sink in for him. He realizes that I'm going to leave the beach. I'm going to leave being able to go to a jazz club. I'm going to believe to be able to be around these people you know, and having fun, you know, I'm just going to go back and it's just going to be me by myself in the basement. And it's enough to make, a, and it's enough to make a person like Tom, who's already has low self-esteem. He's already depressed. Um, he already has gotten so deep in with his lying that at this point, why, why give this up? Well, let's not continue. Let's, let's let this keep going. You know, if I can keep up this facade and this kind of, um, picture that i painted of myself um it would be a waste just to let this go so then he decides to kill dicky in a and i think his killing of dicky wasn't something he had pre-planned of doing it was him trying to protect himself because him and dicky are on the boat and dicky gets up and just starts berating him he calls him boring he calls him a leech and outside of tom i mean any man who's being called boring or a leech by another man is going to want to get up and respond to that in some way. And so Tom, he takes offense to this and he accidentally lashes out, lets his emotions get the best of him, and he hits Dickie and they proceed to have a fight. But at a point, Tom is telling him, like, stop, Dickie, stop. And Dickie, and later on in the film, we learn that Dickie has anger issues of his own. So at a point, Tom is essentially fighting for his life. So he he does what he has to do, he ends up killing Dickie. And then he gets the idea to become Dickie Greenleaf. This is his goal. And so now he's in deep in the good life. He's able to get statues. He's able to buy a piano and to enjoy his passion in a comfortable spot. Not in a spot where he has to lie about um, where he has to lie about going to Princeton, where he has to borrow a jacket from a friend. Now he's in this spot. He's in this house and he wants to live it up as much as he can. And he can't even fathom thinking of going back to that one room basement. So for me, I think Tom came to the realization that he can't go back. You know, there. I mean, you know how they say failure is not an option and that we're burning the ships down and that's it. He, Tom had burned the ships down on going back to New York as a poor guy. He was like, this is it. Like, I'm pretty sure he had to have the foresight to think about how long can I get away with this. But in the moment, he's like, you know what, I'm going to cherish this as much as I can. And I'm going to live this life because I think that. I would do right in it like Dickie would. I think I would appreciate it more than Dickie would. I think that I could um I think that I this is what this is where this is, this is where I don't 
I can feel good about myself. You know, I don't have to feel bad. I don't have to feel bad about being a nobody. I can be a somebody now and I can be able to travel and see things that I wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with something you just said there about the why and how he justifies it in that I think that it's because he feels that he can be a better Greenleaf. He can be better to Marge. He can be a better steward of the opportunity that he's been given. He can respect it and be grateful for it in more ways that Dickie can. And therefore, that's how he can get away with feeling okay about what he did. I actually don't consider it bizarre, irrational at all in, in any way, his violent behavior. I, I feel like it's very natural. I mean, it's natural for someone once that switch is flipped, once that initial kill is definitely violent, but I don't necessarily think it's bizarre or rational. I think it is not, I, I can't say calculated because that makes it sound like, I, like, you know, like he thought about it ahead of time. And I agree with you, Calais. I mean, I, I think it's very clear that it is a spur of the moment decision, but I think first of all, there is something in a person that allows you to ever have that switch flipped to ever be in a position where you can make that kind of mistake when your livelihood is threatened to care so much about your own comforts and so little about someone else's that you would resort to violence to keep your own. I don't think that that's normal. <laughs> and so when you have that person that has that trait and then this trigger occurs and that violent outburst in order to keep it, he then is able to, I think, easily justify it more going down the line as he continues to kill people to protect his secret. Because that initial, like, jarring feeling of, like, I just killed someone, I mean, obviously I haven't done that. And all I can do is compare it to other things and other you know, unsavory things that I may have done in my life. So if let's say I stole, let's say I stole 10 bucks from my dad's wallet, right? And I felt really bad about it at first and I got away with it and I got to use the money and everything kind of worked out. And like I said about how the snowball with the lies, it's a snowball here too, because now, okay, well, I mean, he didn't really miss it. It wasn't really that big of a deal. Like once I've popped the top, once I've done it the first time, it's a lot easier to go back to that well and do it again and do it again and do it again. And, and you just see that be able to become a thing. And I think it desensitizes you. It changes who he is. And it's all about protecting that image at that point and, and those comforts at any cost. And so once you've, once you've done it once, I just, I, there's no reason it would be irrational to continue doing it. It would f feel to me to be the actual rational choice for someone in that position and it definitely is irrational to us on the outside so i know what you're saying but like for him it is makes complete sense it's the only option at that point is to get rid of the threat and like i said i agree with you coles i think that justifying it is at this point he just feels like a better steward of it than dicky and i think that's why he justifies that I think the justification of killing Freddy is a lot easier because he doesn't like Freddy 
anyway. So not only is he protecting himself, but he doesn't like Freddy. And I think his final act is different as well. So I think we get to see three very different motivations there. That one to me indicates a person that is truly completely gone at this point because you're able to kill someone that you maybe love or have incredibly deep feelings for in order to prevent that person from stopping loving you. And so it's almost like he went through it with Dickie once and he got to the point where Dickie bailed on him. So he got to have the friendship and then Dickie quitting him. And he had to stop it before it got to that moment. It was like, I cannot go through that pain again of being rejected by Peter. And so the third one, I think, is justified by that same desire of not wanting to go through it again. When I look at those three murders, I see justification. But I see it from the mind of someone who is gone and who has become addicted to this life that really isn't his that he wants but that he'll eventually do anything to get it and the weird thing is guys with the exception of freddie the other two murders seem to be driven by not getting what he wants but that his motivations seem to change it's like when you look at dickie's murder it's after rejection and also being reminded that he doesn't come from money, that he can't take care of himself, that he is a parasite, essentially. When it comes to his murder of Freddy, it's really about protecting at that point. And the byproduct is that he doesn't like Freddy. So, yeah, it makes sense in that regard, and it's convenient. But when we get to that third murder, it almost becomes like, uh, what are you doing? And you have everything you want, maybe, and you're being given this life that you're continuing to try to appreciate, yet you still insist on killing someone. And we'll get to that. I mean, spoiler alert, that's my connecting point. We'll get to the more details of that when we get there. But when I look at his behavior. I think ultimately it comes down to this gaining addiction for a life that he, in his head at least, would never be able to achieve. He was at Princeton, but he wasn't a student. And I think from that moment, not from that moment, maybe that speaks into what we know about his life that the movie gives us and that because he never came from money, because he never had an easy path, everything that he did achieve good or bad, came from an effort. It came from a sense of having to work for the things that he got. Like even the trust that he got from Mr. Greenleaf came from being impressive in the way that he plays piano and consistency. Does that mean that he's being deceptive? Absolutely not. I think that there are positive characteristics that come from Tom Ripley's life as a result of that hard work. The problem is I think that they were always motivated by trying to get something and get something as quickly as possible. I'll work until it's easy and then I'll work to keep it easy. I think that's kind of what motivated him throughout this film. And something that I thought about and questioned was 
does that motivation actually change? And as I'm working through this conversation, it's a question that I had, but I wanted to kind of frame it differently. I don't think that his motivation necessarily changed. I think he had this innate desire to, when he found out that he was going to go try to get Dickie back, he was going to be exposed to a life that he never would have gotten otherwise. I think he mentioned to Mr. Greenleaf, eventually I will get over there. And he goes, well, here's your ticket. Go ahead. And I think at that point he said, okay, this is going to start the ball rolling, which we get hints of that as he's preparing, he's listening to jazz. And I didn't pick up on this until after I watched the movie and kind of went back and said, oh, okay, that he was actually prepping himself to get in the good graces of Dickie and eventually Marge. And so I think when we watch his progression throughout the story, it's interesting because I feel like there's two levels. There's the level of I'm going to get this thing that I've always wanted, but at the higher level, not necessarily more important, but it's at a different level, it's as if he's saying, I'm going to change based on the circumstances and how I'm going to get them. First of all, I think personally, he went to get Dickie, but to live that life. But I think he fell in love with the life and with Dickie and Marge and that whole thing. And his motivation changed to now I want to stay here, but not just because I want that life, but because I want the people involved with it. So, um, Patrick, I was wondering, what was your exactly your question again? Sorry, as a roundabout way. Well, my original question was wondering if Ripley's motivation for getting Dickie, if it changed as the movie went along. And I actually kind of second guess based on what you guys have said that I don't think it does. But it seemed that it was going from altruistic, getting Dickie back, to wanting that rich lifestyle to becoming Dickie. And I wondered, not knowing what eventually took place, did his overall motivation or his overall ambition to get Dickie back, was that the sole purpose? Or did he have some underlying thing going on with him and getting Dickie back was a part of that bigger picture. I think that you, when you see um, their early interactions with each other, um, once it's established that Tom is going to stay, that there is a little bit of um, there's a little bit of sexual tension right there, and it's hard to really guess if 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 Dickie is like receiving that and he's playing along with it, or is he like playing? Is he toying him along like with a string and he's just playing? off that he knows that tom is like deeply fascinated with him you know um there's a thing that sometimes people they not they desire themselves so much that they desire when someone else desires them so maybe the way that tom is you know kind of following him along and being entranced by this lifestyle he leads you know dickie finds a way to kind of toy with that i mean you'll see insert you'll see exactly when freddie comes along he kind of will throw some side comments towards um tom you know and when freddie is like looking down on him dickie will then start to kind of look down on tom even though they've enjoyed a pretty good relationship from then on um for me tom's his like his motivations i think in a sense that he does care about dickie like he loves the lifestyle. He loves the lifestyle that Dickie could like that leads and that he could fit along with that. But I think in the beginning, he does care about Dickie from a point of a friend, even more than a friend. But he also knows that there could never be something like that with him because Dickie has Marge. He has what, you know, what he, what he, what Dickie tells him, even though he, um, 
cheated on Marge and got another woman pregnant behind her back, he tells her that, well, I'm going to marry Marge. And then Tom is like, what? Like, how can you? Like, you know, you follow your, you follow your thing around like it's nothing. Like, you know, you, you're, you're walking out on Tom and, you know, I mean, me and you, we have a much bigger connection. So at that point, I think Tom is hurt, but he still doesn't, he still wants to be around Dickie, but then when he snaps and then he kills him, then it's all about pres- um, preservation. It's all about survival at that point. And so he doesn't have to worry about now just going back to New York and being a nobody again. Now he has to worry about is somebody going to find the boat? Is someone going to find Dickie's body washed up? So then he just turns into this um this smooth criminal. You know, he turns into this um guy who plans to sneak and hijack Dickie Greenlee's life. So it's turned from being altruistic to being um a guy that you could kind of feel sorry for, but then you see him enjoying the spoils um after he kills somebody no matter what we feel about dicky i mean murdering somebody is just that's that's a stream that was that's something that i would never be able to justify i can't even justify that but now he has turned now into a guy who is the creation of his own story and now the story has worked in his favor and now he wants to continue on the path of that story but what he doesn't realize is that everything that you do comes after you there's consequences for everything it may not be felt at that moment but they eventually come and so then when tom kills freddie at that point now i mean he's a serial killer at that point i mean he's he's now turned into a guy who you don't you don't want to be in his orbit because if you get in his orbit either you're going to be contaminated by it or you're going to end up being one of his victims and if the movie would have been went on a little bit longer and maybe if mr greenlee had not come over Who's to say that he doesn't try to go after Marge? And who's to say he doesn't try to go after anyone else? He was going after Marge. Yes. He was finding something to kill Marge when Freddie came in. So he was going to kill Marge. Like, that was, I thought, point blank. And that was like the, wow, okay, so you will do anything, clearly. Yeah, so at that point, he's now turning to a guy um, who's just cold-hearted now. I mean, um, once we get to the end of the film... We see him kill the guy that he wanted to be with, but now he can't be with because he can't live as Tom Ripley anymore. Tom Ripley's dead now. He has to continue on this lie, and he has to continue to sneak, slither, and play his game the best he can in order to stay one step ahead of anybody finding out who he really is, which is a murderer, uh, a serial killer, and a heartless human being who has a skill for forging signatures, um, doing impersonations, and lies. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I actually, one of my hangups with the film, I guess you could say, something that keeps me from fully loving it is actually that I don't find anything to empathize with about Tom Ripley. I, I, am, I just have a, I have a block there. Like, I cannot feel sorry for him in any way. He is, to me such a villainous character in in so many ways i mean it's subtle it's at first and so i mean i would say you know i don't love the way that people talk to him but from the very beginning of the story he is lying and it's hard for me to hold people as accountable as i would if they were treating him a certain way and he was telling the truth because He's not even telling, he's not even being honest. So why am I going to judge someone for their treatment of him? 
And so it's hard for me to empathize with him much. I, you know, there are moments, I guess, when it's like, I, I kind of get like, ah, oh, that sucks for you. But for the most part, it's hard for me to do that. And, you know, I think he definitely is not going into this, like you said, with this plan. He is flying by the seat of his pants. He is taking every little good thing that possibly comes his way. And then he is looking for a way to expand it and hold on to it from the moment he gets to Italy and sees the boat and sees the lavish lifestyle. Well, even before that, to just getting on the plane, to going to Italy, to taking the money, like he just, he is an opportunist is a great word for it. He is given a small opportunity and he's like, I'm going to take this hundred bucks. I'm going to turn it into a thousand. I'm an investor. I'm going to invest in myself and I'm going to make this grow. And he just uses his skills to continue doing that. And then you know, of course, the narrative things that are going to happen in life are going to be impossible to predict at all times. And so he is able to adapt. That's one of his skills. He changes course frequently in the film from I'm really, you know, I really care about this person. I really want to be with Dickie. That's not going to happen. So ultimately, how do I now become opportunistic in order to continue to progress in this life? in a different direction because this direction I ran into a wall. Now I got to go this way. Oh, now I got to go this way. Now I got to go this way. And he's just going to keep doing that until the wall is impossible for him to get over or impossible for him to get past. And I, I agree with you, Coles. I mean, ultimately Tom Ripley is a character who I have no doubt would take anyone in his way out of his path. Like he, he, only cares about himself and preservation at this point. And you made a great point when you said Tom Ripley's dead because the moment he kills Dickie and decides I'm going to try and become Dickie, he effectively has killed Tom Ripley. And yes, there's more plenty of story where he plays Tom Ripley during the course of the, the encounters with other people. But for him, he is now acting as Tom Ripley. He is not Tom Ripley acting as Dickie. He has mentally become Dickie and he's pretending to be Tom Ripley. I think that's how I read it. Um, which also I'll just throw this in there as this point pattern before you, you share your thoughts. But like, to me, that's the brilliance of the performance and that Damon is incredible here. I mean, it is easily like a top three performance. I know a lot of people consider this his best. I don't know that I can argue with them because he hits so many different amazing emotional swings in this movie and does so much with subtlety. This movie and watching this back to back with Goodwill Hunting and The Martian, which are probably the other two that I might put up there as his acting best, to be honest, I just have such a strong appreciation for this guy that I don't think he's ever gotten in his career. He's usually just kind of forgotten about as he's, he's an A-lister, but nobody thinks of him as that guy, right? Who's an incredible actor. He's a, he's a, got a name <laughs> funny that we talk about that. Like he's got a recognizable name that has power to it, but he's not a Tom Cruise. He's not an Affleck. He doesn't have that just incredible charisma about him. But these three performances that we've gotten to cover Patrick are just, I mean, they prove why he's been able to establish that, even if people don't recognize it or realize it. Well, let's let's look at this real quick. In terms of Matt Damon as the name and as the guy, look at some of the roles that we've seen him in. You've got this one, where he plays Tom Ripley, casual guy, common guy. 
you've got him playing a botanist. He's not the big commander of a ship. He's a botanist. You've got him in Goodwill Hunting, where he plays just this kid from Southie, granted with an incredible math gifting, but still casual, you know, not really much to look at in terms of like, like high society by any means. I mean, even Ocean's Eleven, that character that he plays, Linus, is the guy who is very cat. You know, he's just not thought about as the important dude, and he has to kind of make himself known in that character, which makes it really funny going up against all of these A-list con artists that he's now in his dad's shadow, ironically. He's trying to get out of it. So Matt Damon as an actor, I think, at least in those four roles, I know he's done a ton of other movies, but in those four roles that I remember him in, that's the character he plays. He plays a casual guy that aspires to be greater, whether by accident or design, because he's motivated to either survive or because he's going through a great therapy session with Robin Williams. It doesn't really matter. Those characters, I think, are what make him as an actor really appealing. I mean, take a look at his facial expressions, the way he smiles and looks down. I mean, those are iconic shots that we see from some of the movies that we see him in. He looks down, he's got that half grin where you don't really know what he's thinking, but he seems really, really approachable. Like, I want to hang out with Matt Damon. I think he and I could hang out, go bowling, have lunch or whatever. And then if I cross him, he will leave, maybe leave me stranded on Mars or he will kill me or he will just beat me up without warning because of something that happened in kindergarten. I don't know. It's just you have this guy who I don't think Matt Damon is this, obviously, but the characters he plays have this characteristic of potential. And I think that's probably why he's cast in that is because he looks like an actor has that kind of not so charismatic personality that he can excel to, he can aspire to, and it feels organic. It doesn't feel like he's plastic. It doesn't feel like he's already made it. The characters he plays, I think are appealing because they're characters that we can connect to until they do something irrational, like killing somebody on a boat or whatnot. And I think that's what makes him great. It makes him appealing in all those different roles. Even though they seem similar, they are also different too. Now, with regard to what we were talking about, I think you're right. To, to put it simply, I think the motivation is the same. The method changes because he's opportunistic, because he sees, observes the world around him, and he says, this won't work for me. I'm going to have to adapt. This won't work for me. I'll have to adapt. But ultimately, I think he starts with that initial invitation to go, and he doesn't stop. And it's an addictive thing. It's like, I don't want to lose this. It's interesting when you say he becomes Dickie. I absolutely agree with that. There's a scene, I believe, just before that moment where it may be the scene where Dickie and Marge end up having sex on the boat, but it's a boat scene. And Dickie and Freddie are out in the water and Marge starts this conversation by saying, why is it that boys always have to roughhouse. You know, why do they always have to act like they're killing each other to, in, in their form of play or whatever? But she talks about how, I think it's at that point she reveals to Tom that he's not invited to the ski trip at Christmas. And she says something really interesting. I can't quote it exactly, but she essentially says, that's just who Dickie is. He finds someone, he latches on to him until he's done with them, and then he forgets about him. And it's forgivable to her to an extent. I think she has a little bit of remorse, but she understands that about Dickie. Guys, that's Tom. Tom latches onto somebody until he's done with them, 
or until they cross him, and then he ditches them. They're done. Even with Marge, I think you're right. He would have absolutely killed her in that moment, and that would have been the end of it. It's sad, but it's absolutely true. And I think the question then becomes, I'm not going to ask it necessarily, but rhetorically speaking, the question then becomes, is that Tom or is that Dickie or is that both? Are they both the same person? In a lot of ways, I think they are because they're both very much violent people. They're prone to lash out and freak out. They're both very rebellious. They don't want the life that they have. They want to take what they can from the life that they've been given and use it to get the life that they want. And so in a lot of ways, I think looking at him and Dickie, Tom and Dickie, and watching the performances of Matt Damon and Jude Law, it's really, really fun to watch because you see the same person just sort of migrating into a singular entity and then kind of spreading itself back out. And now you've got this kind of metaphorical switcheroo. <laughs> Granted, Jude Law doesn't become Dick or doesn't become Tom. See, I'm getting confused now. But it's still that same kind of switch where they kind of morph into one person. And Aaron, you're right. I think at that point, Tom doesn't exist anymore. He's a performance that Dickie is portraying in that regard. Also, weirdest thing ever to hear Jude Law with, I guess you could say, an American accent. I don't know what you call it when someone says or speaks American <laughs> in a film that doesn't actually speak like our traditional form of American yeah. English. But it is really weird to hear Jude Law not be British. It was <laughs> extremely awkward for me for like the first half of the film i was just like this is an imposter like this is not actually jude law talking it felt strange seeing that and hearing those words coming out of his mouth that way <laughs> well before we get into our connecting points wanted to see if there was anything else that either of you wanted to bring up that we haven't covered Kales, i know that this is a favorite of yours you're the one that kind of recommended this so was there anything that we missed that you wanted to kind of give some kudos to uh, y'all missed out on probably the best feature of this film, which is the music. Uh, I mean, the music is just fantastic. I mean, it it takes you back to that era of the 1950s, but it also fit the mood, fits the mood for every scene. Like when the music wants to make you happy, it's going to make you happy. Like the the scene where Tom and Dickie first go to the nightclub and they're singing um this they're singing this Italian song to a Valle Americano. And it's a very just a, it's a very jumpy. It always makes me smile every time. I don't know why. And it's gotten to the point where I know the lyrics to to that song right there, even though I don't know what it means in Italian, but I know the lyrics to it. And just the the score itself is excellent as well. Like especially the mischief theme that they play when Tom gets away with doing something sneaky. They play this little like almost like a Pink Panther kind of theme, you know, for him when he gets away with something. And I mean, it's 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 a fantastic soundtrack all around and. I think it's one of the best soundtracks ever done for a film, in my opinion, you know, especially in the 90s. So I think that was um, the best feature of the film. That's awesome. Yeah, it does have a very, very good and memorable score that fits it. Actually, was kind of geeking out there at the beginning because I haven't watched this since it came out 20 years ago and hmm. 30 years ago, I guess now. No, not 30 years ago. We're not that far along. 20 years ago, <laughs> 21 years ago. And... When the whole Charlie Parker and the boat being called the bird or being called bird came on, mm -hmm. you know, of course, I was just smiling from ear to ear because of the connection and the same usage of Charlie Parker being in La La Land. And, and it was fascinating to me because, you know, a movie like La La Land that comes out in 
you know, 2017 or whatever. And I'm introduced to Charlie Parker really for the first time in my life. Didn't even really know who he was up until that point, until that movie brought him into my world. But yet here was this movie 20 years prior that was bringing him into viewers and audiences world as well. Um, the other really thing that stuck out to me that I found interesting about this film is this is a movie that features an LGBTQ person who isn't in a movie where the main plot is about him being gay. And I find that sort of refreshing, honestly, because I feel like there are a lot of films that deal with homosexuality, bisexuality, whatever the case may be. Um, and that is the plot. It always has to be the plot and the point of the film being a romance for that person or coming of age, coming into that person's understanding of who they are and their sexuality. And in this case, it exists and it's very clear that it exists to the viewers. And it's a very informative part of who Tom Ripley is and the decisions he makes, but it's not at all the only thing that defines him. It is a piece of who Tom Ripley is, which I think is amazing because I don't think that our sexuality defines anybody, whether you're homosexual, straight, transsexual, whatever you are, it's a piece of you. It is a part of you. It is not all that matters about you. And I, I just like that this film doesn't make it that way. It doesn't hyper-focus onto it. And so, I, well, I understand why films do do that frequently in today's day and age in order to kind of try and get some, uh, you know, attention to that. I do think it can be overdone, and I like the way it's handled in this movie. Well, all right, gentlemen. We are into connecting point territory. Kales, why don't you start us off with your connecting point? My connecting point was when, fin when finally Tom takes the plunge and he becomes fully Dickie Greenleaf after he kills him in um, San Pedro. Um, I think this, this is his now – his ultimate goal has been achieved. He is now a part of that – distinguished and uh, affluent high class that he always has his sights on. He's now in that life. He's now able to go to the opera. He's now able to um, woo, um, woo a woman and able to take her out on a date. He's able to get introduced to these people. He's able to wear these suits and have, and have this nice home and be able to buy Greek statues. You know, he's finally learned what it's like to be a rich man. And from that point on, it, it all becomes a game of keeping up, you know, being a rich man. I mean, at the end of the film, he ends up getting money from Mr. Gr from Dickie's trust that's designated by Mr. Greenleaf. So in actuality, once he becomes Dickie Greenleaf, he does really become Dickie Greenleaf. He ends up getting money in his pocket. And I think that this scene right here, you know, while there's always a constant complaint about this film that I am seeing. And I do find some warrant in it where people who say that after Dickie dies, the film kind of loses a little bit of its energy and steam. And I do agree with that. You know, um, it's like what, it's like what Mars says in the film, Dickie, when he, when he's there, he's like a beat, he's like a breath of sunlight and he, and he shines on you. You feel special. You feel like you're the biggest person in the world. And when he's gone, you feel lonely. You feel cold. You feel like nothing's, nothing's going I don't feel special anymore. And when Dickie leaves the film, Jew Law leaves the film, it does feel like it takes on a different tone. But you just have to admire the work that Damon puts in. He's able to then on carry the film on his own steer and 
have these other characters fall into his whirlwind. And I think that this scene is the beginning of the down, the downfall, the demise of Tom Ripley, and the beginnings of his life as a fake somebody. Good stuff, Kalas. What about you, Aaron? Well, mine was actually a kind of a tie, Patrick, between what yours is going to be and the scene that actually comes kind of before that. That I think I think these two, mine and yours, really tie well together. Mine starts a thing, and yours sort of bookends it perfectly. And mine is Tom and Peter at the piano, uh, starting kind of towards the climactic section of the film. And it's this conversation that they have. And I'm going to read through it just briefly. It's not very long. So Peter says, can you imagine, though, if he did kill Freddy, talking about Dickie, what that must be like? Just to wake up every morning. I mean, how can you just wake up and be a person? Drink your coffee. And Tom says, well, whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it, in your head? You never meet anybody who thinks they're a bad person. Peter says, well, maybe, but you're still tormented. You must be. You've killed someone. And Tom says, don't you just take the past and put it in a room in the basement and lock the door and never go in there? That's what I do. Peter, God, yes, but of course, in my case, it's probably a whole building. And Tom says, and then you meet someone special, and all you want to do is toss them the key and say, open up, step inside, but you can't because it's dark and there are demons. And even, and if anybody saw how ugly it is, and Peter says, now that's the music talking, and Tom says, I keep wanting to do that. Fling the door open. Just let the light in to clean everything out. If I could take a giant eraser and rub out everything, starting with myself. The thing is, Peter, if, if, no. And Peter says, no key, huh? This is really what kind of tied into my uh, one more takeaway as well about the snowball and the idea of keeping secrets and sin and how these things eat away at you and become this bigger and bigger and bigger thing. And when we've done something we know that's wrong, it just tears you apart inside. If you have any semblance of humanity. And I think what we see here is that Tom does like, he's not a complete psychopath, right? In the way that maybe many serial killers are Tom recognizes what he has done at least at this point and i think he i think he is smart enough to understand where it's taking him and that he is on this path that he has these demons he has this dark place that if he can't wash it away and bring in the light and find healing and find redemption and forgiveness for it and clear the air that it is ultimately gonna just consume him I think he knows, and yet he can't get away from it, right? It, it, this this whole conversation is like a cry for help in so many ways. Like he wants to tell Peter right here, but he just can't do that, right? He can't confront what he's done and accept the consequence of that. He's really tormented. Um, and then I think that it also just speaks to how badly Tom has wanted that someone special in his life this entire film, right? 
and this is this is kind of what I was going with the LGBTQ thing. It doesn't have to be that. It could be someone who's heterosexual. It could be anything. But the point is, the driving force of while Tom loves the money and the lifestyle and everything, I don't believe he wants it without having someone. He doesn't want to have it and live alone. That is what kills him. It slays him. It, it hurts him so much to lose Dickie. And then he finds Peter and he feels relief as if like, okay, you know, yes, I have this stuff that he wants, but like he wants to be, he wants to be able to share it with someone. Right. And so now he has Peter and he's conflicted. And of course that ultimately is going to become a, a thing at the end of the film, but he wants so badly to be in love with someone and be completely open and honest with someone at the same time, the choices he's made to try and achieve the ability to be with someone like that has made it impossible for him to actually be open and share these things with him. He has created a complete impossibility and paradox within his own life that has no way out. He does. There is no key as Peter says, I think. And uh, I just I felt really emotional in this moment, not because, you know, I personally am experiencing this, but I felt that for Tom. Like if there's a moment I have any empathy, it's right here where it's like he wants to confess. And like I understand I think anybody watching this can understand the desire we have to be able to have that human connection, that love and share a relationship with someone. And I think we've all probably gone through this on some level, not as a movie has with having murdered someone that we need to, you know, come clean about. But when you decide to be in a serious relationship with someone, a lot of times your secrets come out and you've got to tell them some of the stuff that sucks. You know, I remember guys telling my kids, <laughs> I'm telling the whole world right now. It's great. I just realized that I'm on a podcast <laughs> as I'm about to say this, but like it came up this weekend again, it was funny. But like when I told my kids that I didn't finish high school, that I got kicked out of high school before I graduated and the, 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 the looks on their faces, like just the, that secret to, I guess that I had that I hadn't been able to share with them. You know, you have to go through this really painful process sort of, of bringing it back up and dealing with it in a new way. And it reminded me of all of that, that we all go through um, watching Tom have this. And it was, it was, semi-tragic for me because i kind of was like man i wish you guys could just be together i really kind of do but you know you screwed the pooch tom so let me let me piggyback off that leading into my connecting point which is the very last scene of the movie did your kids aaron did they laugh at you did they reject you at all of course not okay. i mean oh they they laughed i mean there's definitely sure. some like mom's got a master's degree and you didn't even graduate high school sure. ha 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 yeah but i mean kid ridicule aside they, they, they absolutely just, did not reject they me they accepted yeah. it they accepted it and i imagine that they offered you a little bit of grace beyond just the i'm gonna be your child and and ridicule you like my son is ultimately starting to do at seven and a half but whatever that's where i think the connection is for me with this last scene because when we look at dickie and his relationship with tom Tom essentially confessed to Dickie. Whatever the relationship was, he confessed that he cared deeply about Dickie. Whether it was sexual in nature, whether it was a deep Jonathan David type of relationship, 
he confessed that he cared. And what did Dickie do? He ridiculed him. He said, you're a leech. You don't know anything, which led to Dickie's demise. This death of Peter, I think, was more heartbreaking because of what happened just before it. Tom comes in, and he is essentially confessing. He is saying, I am nothing. I need you to tell me things about Tom Ripley. And he, I love that he uses the third person, not about me. I think, and I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, it kind of ruins this whole thing for me. But if I believe he says, tell me things about Tom. Tell me some good things about, about Tom Ripley. And he starts, and he just, I mean, this is Damon being Damon. He just curls up around him. And at this point, I'm like, cool, this is going to fade to black. And I don't think I'm looking for redemption, but I'm looking for closure. And I think at this point, Peter's going to tell him all these great things, and Tom's going to say, Peter, I need to tell you something. And he's going to confess to him, and the talented Mr. Ripley is going to end with a bow. And instead, it ends, ends with blood and suffocation, because we get this amazing shortcut to Peter telling Tom these things. Beginning, by the way, with him saying he's talented. And the camera holds, and then we see Tom back in his stateroom, this kind of small closet area, whatever, sitting on his bed with words coming from Peter's mouth off screen. Tom is tender. Tom is loving. And then that soundtrack that you mentioned, Coles, the score starts kind of elevating, and we start hearing Tom is crushing me. Tom is crushing me. And my mouth kind of held a little bit wide open. I'm like, wait, what's what? And it surprised me more than anything because I'm like, this is what you wanted, Tom. You wanted not for someone to tell you how great you were, but for someone to tell you authentically what they felt about you. You weren't coaxing them. You weren't saying, okay, tell me more. Tell me more. What we know from that scene before we get to that pivotal moment is that Tom is just listening. He is just being cradled and he's saying, I just need to know that I'm a good guy. And I won't say the movie's ruined. It's not ruined, by the way. But the movie takes this oh, tragic turn to where Tom can't even receive the grace that's being given to him. It's not even that he rejects it, but he suffocates it. He completely kills it. And in essence, he kills any opportunity of a life that he really does want. Not just the life of privilege, not just the life of pleasures and of living a life in high society, but of sharing that with someone and sharing that with someone authentically. Because he could share that life with any other person, any other character in this movie, but I think Peter is the one person, bookended by what you talked about, Aaron, he's the one person that he could have shared that life with. And I honestly believe because I believe that the Norrington in Peter would come out and he would forgive him and he would be able to say, I forgive you. It's okay. It would probably take a lot, but I don't think that Tom was able to be that vulnerable enough to risk that kind of exposure. And I think the life that he wanted eventually became the life that he couldn't choose to give away anymore. And it left him alone. And so we're left at that final shot 
which I think is so amazingly shot with him sitting on a bed and seeing multiple reflections in these different mirrors and we're like, who is Tom Ripley? And I think he's asking himself that same thing because he doesn't believe he is, he doesn't believe that he is Tom, doesn't believe he's Dickie. And I think in that moment, he doesn't know who he is. I think he is just an unknown person at that point. And then the movie cuts to black and we're left with nothing, absolutely nothing. And I'm like, ah, it's tragic, but it's brilliant. And for me, I think that's the moment that stood out as what got my heart probably pulled the most. Well, on that note, we will wrap up this episode of Feeling Film. Let's leave on a high note. Kales, thanks for coming back to the show. Where can people find you across the interwebs if they want to connect with you about this movie or anything else that you're doing re regarding the Seattle Film Critics Society or the other stuff that you're doing? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the alias Black Nerd Magic. You can find me under Facebook as Kales Davis, my um, real name. I'm not a Dickie Greenleaf or anything, but Kales Davis. <laughs> and... Uh, you can also find me and the, the reviews I have written on feelingfilm.com. And also, another podcast to check out is Feeling Film Black Label. If you want to come and check us out. Right now, we're a little bit hiatus, but we're going to get back to it when the time is right. And um, also, check out letterbox.com. I'm under there as Black Nerd Magic as well to see more reviews from me. I really think you should change your Twitter name to the talented Mr. Davis for a while. I think that would be perfect. I think that would be, I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, over the next couple of weeks, we move from Matt Damon to LDC himself, Leonardo DiCaprio, starting with Catch Me If You Can. So you'll want to return for that one, and uh, it'll be <laughs> – I'm laughing because – That's because that's why you asked me the other day. You were like asking for clarification about what yeah. was that nickname. I actually wasn't. It just kind of came to me tonight. I was, I'm going to use that. That's going to be fun. I didn't realize I'd get a laugh out of my co-host here, but that's good well, stuff. Well, guys, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.